Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, transformed the Mishnah into a text. And now Dov Zechheim, calling from a fascinating array of sources, has brought to life the story and historical times of Judah the Prince, offering us a portrait of one of the seminal figures of early Judaism. Join us as we talk with Dov Zechheim about his recent work, The Prince and the Emperors, The Life and Times of Rabbi Judah the Prince, published under the Magid imprint of Corin Publishers. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dov Zekheim holds a BA from Columbia University and a DPhil from St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. He served as Undersecretary of Defense for the United States from 2001 to 2004 and received rabbinic ordination from the Gaon Rabbi Shmuel Walken. Among his other works, he's the author of Nehemiah, Statesman and Sage, Magi 2016. Dove, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Well, thank you. So, Dove, you served as Undersecretary of Defense for the United States, but you've also been ordained as a rabbi. That's a fascinating combination. Can you tell us more about yourself? Well, um, I studied uh, at a yeshiva high school and elementary school. Uh, I then went to Columbia, spent my junior year at the London School of Economics, but also part-time at what was then called Jews College, which was part of the University of London, um, and actually ordained rabbis. Um, I studied there part-time, returned to Columbia, then was at Oxford, and again studied part-time, received my ordination actually just about nine months before I got my doctorate at Oxford. So they more or less uh, came at the same time. It's a family tradition. My father was an attorney, uh, both in Europe uh, and uh, in the United States, also had uh, smicha. In fact, we go back many generations, and I don't know anyone of those generations who actually practiced the rabbinate as opposed to doing something else. Um, My dad, before the war, was the legal counsel of the Jewish community of uh, Lithuania, and of uh, the leading religious figure at the time, Rabbi Chaim Osek Brzezinski. Um, and again, as I said, he, he also was ordained. And so uh, it's kind of a tradition. For those who are not familiar with the Talmudic figure, Rabbi Judah the Prince, would you give us a basic orientation as to who he was when he lived and what sources you drew from to put together his biography? What makes him so significant? But also, what first drew you to him as a person to study? Well, he was born earlier in the early part of the second century. This is in 135. There's a, actually a, a midrash, uh, a story that, well, you can take it as you wish to take it, um, but that he was born on the day that Rabbi Akiva died. Now, Rabbi Akiva, who is well known to most people who know a bit about Jewish history, uh, was a martyr, um, was very anti-Roman, and uh, Judah, the young Judah, was not like that at all. 
but I think the, the story is meant to convey that leadership transferred so that when this man died, the next one uh, was born. Uh, and Judah grew up in a small town near, the, near Tiberias in the Galilee called Usha. His father, Rabbi Simeon ben Gamliel II, who was the Nasi, who was the prince, uh, actually had, had to disappear. The Romans had a price on his head. And so he was brought up by another rabbi who was like his foster father, uh, a man named Rabbi Judah Eli. Um, those who are familiar with the Mishnah will be familiar with a man named Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Judah. That's him. He appears very, very often. And so he was one of uh, this younger Judah's uh, tutors uh, and mentors. Uh, he had a lot of them, by the way. Uh, and um, he seems to have been a pretty rambunctious young fella. Uh, he hung out with Rabbi Judah's son, or Rabbi Yosef, who later became Rabbi Yosef. Um, and they, they were pretty familiar with uh, Jewish law. And so there's an incident that's reported that um, they took some, uh, some figs that normally you had to tithe them, but there was a loophole that if you took them out of the back of the, of the garden, you didn't have to. And so that's what they did. So they could have all 100% of the figs, not just 90%. And Rabbi Judah gave them a hard time. And it's pretty clear from the story that Rabbi Yossi was the tag along, young Yossi, and Rabbi, and the young Judah was the guy who concocted this idea. So you get the sense that he was very bright, he was precocious, uh, and he was a bit of a troublemaker. Um, very often those go together. I, I found that very appealing myself. Um, and then he you know, uh, studies under numerous rabbis, uh, one of whom was Rabbi Meir, and perhaps I'll get into a story about him because it's one of my favorite stories uh, about Rabbi Judah in a way. Um, he studied uh, with this, uh, a rabbi called Rabbi Eleazar ben Shemua. And the story there is interesting because he seems to have been pushed around. He was, it was almost like musical chairs. And when it, <laughs> when it came to him, there wasn't a chair. They squeezed him. The other students squeezed him from both sides, and he was very, very unhappy. And my guess is, and it's pure speculation, you know, he, here was the pampered, you know, sort of little Lord Fauntleroy type. Uh, and um, this was a good chance to beat up on him. Uh, if you read about or have seen uh, what Prince Charles went through at Gordonston, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Um, you know, everybody gives the, the prince a hard time. And, and so that was... Uh, what happened to him. So that, that's a kind of a sense of what this man was like, his origins, of course. I mean, he was a prince. Uh, he, he, the family uh, claimed that they went all the way back to King David so that they were royals, except that um, they acknowledged they were royals on the mother's side. That is to say, he actually came from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, there was a marriage and that's where they, and so that's how they descended from King David, as opposed, by the way, to the uh, man who was called the Reish Galuta, the head of the uh, diaspora who was based in Babylon, which was the center of the diaspora at the time, uh, who claimed direct descendant, uh, uh, being a direct descendant of King David, uh, which gave him a kind of superiority and protocol. If they had sat together, he would have sat uh, at the head of the table, not Rabbi Judah. There's a story about him arriving and supposedly arriving in, in uh, Judea and Rabbi Judah gets all uptight because all of a sudden he doesn't have top priority 
But then it turns out that he was dead and that they were just bringing him for burials. So Rabbi Judah calmed down. The first formal, as it were, prince was Hillel, the famous Hillel, um, who was a direct ancestor of Judah. And then there were a series of rabbis, some better known than others. For instance, there's a rabbi Gamaliel. The first is actually mentioned in the New Testament in the book of Acts. I think he's the only rabbi actually mentioned in the New Testament, um, but he's mentioned in actually a pretty good way. So he obviously seems to have gotten along reasonably well with Christians or early Christians or Judeo-Christians or whatever they were. Um, <clears throat> rabbi, the second rabbi Gamaliel, Rabban Gamaliel, as he was called, was pretty much of an arrogant fellow and got into a whole uh, a match with uh, another rabbi named Rabbi Joshua and actually got him, uh, expelled him. Well, he didn't really expel him. He just embarrassed him, humiliated him in front of all the students. And then he had to apologize and he was deposed for a while. Uh, and then his son was this Rabbi Simeon, Ben Gamaliel, who was uh, Rabbi Judah's father. And as I say, there's a story about him, which ties in with Rabbi Mayer, actually. You note in your book that the Romans recognized Rabbi Judah's leadership role among the Jewish community. What was life like for Rabbi Judah and the Jewish people after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? Well, it, it took a while for things to settle down. I mean, the temple's destroyed in, in 70. Um, the general at the time is Vespasian. There's a story that the that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka was smuggled out, meets Vespasian, who's then the general, uh, and says to him, uh, <clears throat> you know, you're going to become Caesar, and then he becomes Caesar and all that. But things seem to have calmed down. What, what, what Rabbi Yochanan had asked for a number of things from Vespasian, and one of them was to preserve the rabbinical order uh, in a place called Yavna, where, by the way, there's a yeshiva in Israel today called Yavna. Um, another was to preserve the royal house, which is how the princes survived. But then, of course, there was trouble. Uh, the Jews in um, outside Palestine, actually, outside Judea, rebelled against Emperor Trajan in 115. Uh, and then there was a rebellion inside Judea, uh, the bar, famous Bar Kokhba rebellion from 132 to 135. That's the year that Rabbi Akiva uh, is said to have died. And this was against Hadrian. And Hadrian wasn't really anti-Semitic, but he couldn't tolerate a revolt. He was having the Romans were constantly at odds with, with what were then called the Parthians, the people who now live in Iran, uh, the Persians. And so Judea was kind of like a border state, and he just couldn't afford for rebellion there. And so he crushes, crushes it, and he crushes it in a very serious way. He, he lays waste to Jerusalem. He gives it a new name, Ilia Capitolina. Uh, he bans circumcision, he bans family purity, he bans the Sabbath. I mean, he basically bans the religion and he bans the religion, the, the leadership. He bans the, uh, the uh, princely role. Uh, he bans the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court. Uh, and so he's basically trying to wreck the entire structure of Judaism. When he dies, he actually comes down toward the end as well. But when he dies, he's replaced by Antoninus Pius who isn't particularly friendly either, except in his later years, he allows the Sanhedrin to come back. He allows a number of things to come back. And then you get this sort of gradual easing up of relations between the Romans and the Jews. 
Jews realize they're not going to be able to revolt anymore. Romans have lots of other issues on their plate, uh, including quite a bit of internal uh, eruptions. There are some emperors who don't really last very long. There was one, Domitian. Uh, Domitian really was very anti-Semitic. He wanted to kill all the Jews. I mean, he, he basically was into genocide. But he was such a horrible person that he gets assassinated in 96. So, and that basically saves them. Um, so by the time Rebbe is born, uh, or rather Rebbe become, he's born right after, right at the time of, the, of Hadrian's destruction of, of Jerusalem and all. But by the time he matures, there've been a series of Roman emperors, things have quieted down. And so when he, when he succeeds his father, Rabbi Simeon, um, there's a different relationship and there is not the same degree of hostility. And he develops these uh, relations with what I believe are two Roman emperors. And, you know, he's, he's very worldly. You know, his father taught him Greek as well as Hebrew. He didn't, he didn't think much of Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca, but also of the lower classes. And it was the Yiddish of its time. And he didn't think much of it, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. I mean, there's, there's even a book that's been written in Hebrew about why Yiddish is a holy language, which is kind of interesting because, of course, we've got the Sephardi Jews who don't speak Yiddish at all. German Jews don't speak Yiddish at all. So in any event, the Yiddish of the time was Aramaic, and uh, Rabbi Judah didn't think much of it and was very explicit about it. He was also educated in, in Greek knowledge, which was banned to most Jews. He clearly was a very, very different kind of uh, Jewish leader from the way people imagine our Jewish leaders today or, or, our, or our very Orthodox Jewish leaders today. Uh, he was worldly wise. And so, you know, that plus, by the way, one other thing, his uh, foster father, Rabbi Judah, was also a Philo Roman. And that's very important because he obviously influenced Judah. Remember, Judah's father is not around. He's, he's escaped for quite some time. There is a story in the Talmud, and there's no reason not to believe it, because it's not there to prove very much, that there were three rabbis, Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And they're having a discussion about Rome. Rabbi Judah praises them. Rabbi Yossi says nothing. And Rabbi Shimon, who's kind of like Rabbi Akiva, who's his, his teacher, is violently anti-Roman. Romans find out about this. Rabbi Judah is put in a high pedestal. He's called the first of the speakers. Rabbi Yossi just, you know, he kept quiet, wasn't good enough. He escapes. And um, Rabbi Shimon has basically has a price on his head. And he has to hide out for many years. So Rabbi Judah Barilai um, was clearly somebody who had a favorable view of Rome. And so you combine that with the lessening of tensions, and you can see why our Rabbi Judah um, could uh, get along with the Romans as well as he could. Now, a notable feature of Rabbi Judah's biography is not only his leadership among the Jewish people, but his political interactions with non-Jewish leaders, including two emperors. Tell us about that. Well, uh, I believe he did. Now, there are many theories about <clears throat> who Antoninus is. The Talmud has all kinds of stories about Rab Reb Rabbi Judah, or Rebbe as he's called, uh, and this Antoninus. Now, 
it was a common name among several Roman emperors, beginning with Antoninus Pius, but, but after him. Uh, so who is this Antoninus? And, and, and it seems to me that uh, certain theories, like, for instance, Marcus Aurelius, the great Stoic philosopher king, a lot of people say that's the Antoninus. Um, I don't think so, because he didn't like Jews. He was very explicit about it. He thought they were terrible people. Uh, and he had visited Palestine and so um, or Judea. I guess by that point, it was already called Palestine. And um, he uh, he just didn't like them. So it's very unlikely that he got along with somebody like uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince. On the other hand, Septimius Severus, uh, who uh, became uh, emperor and was a contemporary of Judah, he was an interesting character. He was he wasn't actually born in Italy or in Rome. He was born in North Africa. And uh, the family language was Punic, which is like Phoenician, which happens to be similar to Hebrew. I mean, it's not identical. There's a big debate over how close it is to Hebrew. But there are obviously some words that I think it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe Spanish and Portuguese or something like that, or maybe Spanish and Romanian, which are a little further apart. But you can kind of figure out what the other person's saying. So he must have known Jews because where he lived was a pretty big Jewish community. Uh, and then uh, he visits Palestine twice. And of all people, St. Jerome, the uh, early Christian uh, uh, church father, writes that Septimius Severus and his son, Caracalla, and I'll get to Caracalla in a minute, both were friendly to Jews. So we have an outside source, which is very rare when it comes to Talmudic stories or anything about uh, the Talmud. Um, to find an outside source saying anything much, and by the way, that isn't negative. I mean, you want to find negative stuff about Jews, read Tacitus. And, and there's all kinds of negative negativity in Roman historians <clears throat> and Greeks, for that matter. But this is positive. Now, Caracalla was not a nice person, uh, to put it mildly, but he was also uh, friendly to Jews. And there's a story in a in a sort of Roman history called uh, Historia Augusta. And that has, you know, there's a lot of fable in that particular one, but there must be a germ of truth to it. And the story goes like this. Caracal is seven years old and a bunch of people are picking on a little Jewish boy and Caracal stands up for him. Now that really seems to corroborate what Jerome is saying. And then you've got Caracal visiting Palestine twice we actually have one of his roots, which was awfully close to where Judah was living at the time. And he, and I believe together with his father, issued the what's called the Edict of Caracalla, which made, among others, Jews full Roman citizens. So you got a lot of things pointing to those two people. Then there are the stories in the Talmud itself. Some of them are, you know, pretty wild, like a a tunnel essentially from Rome to uh, to wherever to the Galilee, where every single day the the emperor Antoninus would go and see Rabbi Judah, which means he was taking some kind of channel tunnel. Um, <clears throat> but when you consider that the actual channel tunnel wasn't built until quite recently, um, you can take that story for what it's worth. Um, there are other stories. He converted to Judaism. He learned Torah. You know, that's all well and good. On the other hand, there's a story where Antoninus complains to Rebbe that the Senate's giving him a hard time. 
And what he wants to do is make Tiberius uh, what's called a colonia, which is the highest level of uh, a city in the Roman system. And he wants to name his son emperor. And Rebbe says to him, you know what? Start with naming your son and then do the other. Because that way you'll be able to get it through the Senate. Now, we know Caracalla had trouble with the Senate. He killed a whole bunch of them, actually. So did Septimius Severus, by the way. Um, so there seems to be a germ of truth to this in terms of how do you manage the politics? Another case, he's talking about, he's telling Judah, you know, there, I've got lots of enemies in the Senate. And Judah says to him, pick them off one by one. Don't do a massive purge. Pretty, pretty smart kind of advice. You know, you don't go after all your enemies at once because then they'll converge on you. Um, but realistic, up, you know, to a significant extent. Um, he, as I said, he had trouble with the Senate. He didn't like the Senate. So um, I think there are elements here. Uh, and, and this is my view generally of all these uh, Talmudic stories. There's a grain of truth. If you want to take them literally, like, say, the uh, Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox do, well, you know, fine, take them literally. If you want to deny them, I suppose you can deny them. But these stories, um, and, and generally rabbinic literature, is not one of one piece. You've got two different Talmuds written at different times. I mean, it's uh, spaced apart by a couple of hundred years, actually. You then have a host of Midrashim. You then have the Tosefta. You have a body of literature. And when the body of literature all points in the same direction, you got to say, look, there must be some truth there. What is your favorite anecdote about Judah the Prince? Well, <laughs> I was alluding earlier to um, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Simeon ben Gamliel, uh, Judah's father. And this actually affects Judah. So here's what happened. Rabbi Simeon is away, right? He's run away from the Romans. He comes back. Well, what happens in the meantime? You've got, you know, sort of like the American government today, half the officials are acting. Um, and so you've got two people. They're not really acting, but they're sort of acting. You have Rabbi Nathan, who's called the Av Bezdin, the head of the court, and Rabbi Meir, whom I mentioned earlier, who's called the Chacham, who's kind of like a decisor. They're the ones that are getting all the respect. Right. If you're an acting secretary of defense, people treat you like a secretary of defense. Sort of. Well, Rabbi Simeon comes back. All of a sudden, they're not the acting anything. I mean, they are what they are, but they're not number one anymore. Well, Rabbi Mayer is really unhappy, but he doesn't want to replace, personally replace Rabbi Simeon. He knows it's too, too much of a leap. So he goes to Rabbi Nathan. Why does he go to Rabbi Nathan, who is the number two in the, in the order? So Rabbi Nathan's father is the head of the Galut, is the Reish Galuta, the head of the diaspora. Remember the, the one who descends directly from King David. And there's another reason. He says, and I've seen this. Um, <clears throat> he, he goes to Rabbi Nathan and says, look, you become number one, I'll become number two. I'll take your job. I remember when uh, I came into the Bush administration, Colin Powell uh, became Secretary of Defense. Who does he put as his number two? His best friend, Rich Armitage. Not all that different. Or if you want to go back in history, Napoleon, what does he do? As soon as he conquers places, he puts his brothers in charge. 
say he, he puts Joseph, I think it was in charge of Naples, the kingdom of Naples, which is all of Southern Italy. And, and then uh, he puts, uh, I think it's Lewis. He puts him in charge of uh, Net Holland. So this is, this is a pattern. Let me put it this way. So Rabbi Mayer is putting this whole plot together. Well, how are they going to depose Rabbi Shimon? Rabbi Simeon, well, they got to embarrass him. So how are they going to embarrass him? They're going to ask him questions on the Talmud that he's not going to be able to answer. And they'll say, see, he's not really qualified. He, he lost it when he was uh, in exile, whatever. He's lost half a, half a Talmudic step, if you will. Well, there's a, a rabbi named Rabbi Yaakov ben Krusai, Krusai, who hears all of this, overhears the plot. So he goes to Rabbi Simeon and he says, look, these guys, they're plotting against you. And they're going to ask you questions about a particular tractate called Uktsin, which is one of the most abstruse, tra maybe it's the most abstruse tra tractate in the Talmud. And he says to Rabbi Simeon, you better know your stuff by tomorrow morning. So Rabbi Simeon spends the whole evening, the whole night going over Uktsin. And of course, they throw questions at him the next day. <laughs> and he answers them all, so he embarrasses them. So they get basically kicked out. Rabbi Nathan has a dream that, you know, hey, you really were, were out of bounds on this one. And he goes and apologizes. Rabbi Mayer says, I don't believe in dreams and I'm not apologizing. So Rabbi Mayer at that point no longer is, is quoted as Rabbi Mayer. He's co quoted as a cherem, others. The only other person who's quoted in that way is the great apostate Elisha ben Avuya. There's been a wonderful biography written about him. He's called Acher, the other. Rabbi Meir is called others, plural. How does this relate to Judah? Obviously, it affects his father. But Jude, one of Judah's, uh, who was quite a peripatetic student, he would go to different yeshivas. I mentioned two of them earlier, but he also studied in Rabbi Meir's yeshiva. Rabbi Meir never faced him, always turned his back on him. And it really bothered really bothered Rabbi Judah, as you can imagine, you know, you're in a class and the teacher constantly is turning his back on you. I thought that was a fascinating story. That was super. Dove, would you give us a brief glimpse of Rabbi Judah's last days? Yeah, look, he, he suffered from a lot of ailments. Uh, and by the end, he's really suffering from terrible intestinal ailments. And one of the things that one of the, the uh, halacha, the Jewish laws about fill in the phylacteries is you can't wear them if you're having stomach trouble if you you know you, you don't wear them in the bathroom well he, he kind of had montezuma's disease or you know or was in india and drank the water kind of thing uh and i remember actually i was once at a thanksgiving dinner in new delhi and this poor lady she could not sit at the table every five minutes she had to run away this is what he had he had intestinal trouble so he's constantly take, putting on his phylacteries and then taking them off. And, and it's just painful to watch. The rabbis want, didn't want him to die. So they're praying. They're constantly praying to keep him alive. And as long as they're praying, he's alive. He had a very, very clever housemaid. Uh, she, she figures prominently, actually, in a number of cases where she seems to understand certain words better than the rabbis do. Um, and she sees this and she is really taking pity on her boss. So she cries out to heaven that they should, you know, they should take his soul. But they've got all these rabbis. She, she's outnumbered. So what does she do? 
it's a parallel to a, a, a story about how King David died, actually. King David didn't want to die, so he was studying the whole time Torah constantly. So the angel of death wants to, you know, get him. He has, you know, he's got a mission. He's got to take David's soul. So he causes some kind of interruption. David looks up and that's it. He's finished. Same kind of thing here. She realizes she's not going to be able to, you know, outshout the rabbis. So she throws something from the roof. The rabbis are startled, a big noise. They look up and Rabbi Judah's gone. It's like Charlie Brown's going to kick the football at the last second. Lucy pulls it. <laughs> That's what the maid did. <laughs> That's great. In your book, you mention how understanding the life and times of Rabbi Judah helps to provide a context for understanding the Mishnah and, by extension, the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds. Do you have any other goals or hopes for this book? Sure. I mean, I sort of alluded to it or at the very beginning of our discussion. Um, you know, we have a term modern orthodox. I don't think modern orthodoxy is particularly modern. Um, there's always been modern orthodoxy, whatever you wanted to call it. Rabbi Judah embodies that. Um, you know, one doesn't have to be cloistered in the four walls of yeshiva all day and all night in order to be a, a, a great rabbi, in order to be a great human being. And what he shows is he's open to other sources of knowledge. He's open to relations with non-Jews. And by the way, they weren't only uh, emperors. Um, he there's a story about him sitting down at, at a meal with a with a priest. It's not clear whether he's a Christian priest or a, a pagan priest. And he's sitting down and having a meal. And even if his meal is kosher and the other fellows is not, they're sitting together. So he's open to a much larger uh, scope of life. And of course, his, you know, uh, putting priority on speaking Hebrew, not Yiddish, not Aramaic, not Ladino, Hebrew. And after that, it's again, it's not Yiddish, it's Greek. It's like speaking Hebrew and English today. He's a nationalist. There's no question about it. He's a decisor. He gets questions and, and issues rulings for all over the world. Um, he knows how to disagree in a respectable way. When you look at our society in the United States today, in our politics, or in Jewish politics, the vituperation is just horrifying. He's not like that. He doesn't always say it's my way or the highway. And he's ready to take huge risks. He actually proposed abolishing Tishabov, the fast of Tishabov. Now, you know, a couple hundred years later, the rabbis tried to explain that away, <clears throat> maybe. But he is clearly uh, a guy who thinks outside the envelope. Well, you put all that together and you get a very, very different image of a Jewish leader. And one that I think um, it would be wonderful if more of us emulated. Well, before we let you go, Dove, would you tell us about any other projects you're working on? Well, um, you know, I'm just getting started, obviously. Uh, I write uh, virtually every week on national security issues. 
So I'm, I, that's an ongoing thing. I write for The Hill, which is a, a sort of inside the Beltway journal. And I write for a thing called The National Interest, which actually gets a lot of hits all the time. Uh, but on the Jewish side, and, and I've done this for years, I've published articles and, you know, this is my fourth book, two on Jewish themes, two on non-Jewish themes. But uh, for the, my Jewish interest now is uh, on a man called Shmuel. Uh, and he's cut from the same kind of cloth. And, and in fact, my, my previous book on uh, a purely Jewish theme was uh, a, com- a biography of Nehemiah, of Nehemiah, again, because he was a very different kind of leader. Well, it turns out that Shmuel um, never got smicha, never was ordained, uh, yet he's uh, a leading religious leader. He, he also has non-Jewish friends. He's a doctor. He's an astronomer. Um, he uh, came up with a rule that is critical today and, and in every generation, which is the law of the land is the law. He had a very enlightened view. Remember, slavery, as we know, was common until a century and a half ago, at most two centuries ago, if you want to look at what uh, the British started doing in the early 19th century, um, which is to say they banned the trade and so on. Till then, slavery was a common thing. He was very concerned about how female slaves would be treated. Sort of like a supporter of a female slave Me Too movement. Came out with rules against abusing female slaves. So he was an enlightened guy. He was, again, he he apparently spoke Persian because he was able to communicate with the king of Persia, which is a little bit uh, parallel to Rabbi Judah and uh, the uh, emperors. And he was educated and he's, he appears all over the Talmud because his rules on non-tradition issues of that do not involve tradition, but involve torts and involve monetary issues. And so we follow his rules. So that's sort of a project I'm beginning to work on because he's such a fascinating individual. We'll look forward to that book. Dov, it's been fascinating to learn more about Rabbi Judah the Prince and to get to know you a bit better. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right, friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.